This is Car Expert. When you look at Tiguan sales, it's been affected by supply issues perhaps more so than than almost any other vehicle in its segment. They've been able to inject 911 into a big freaking SUV and I think that is an absolute engineering triumph. It's potentially the best petrol-powered Jolion that's currently on sale. Uh, I know that's oddly specific, but there's reasons for that. Hello, William Stofford. Hey, Mandy. And hello to you, James Wong. Hello, hello. Guys, I've been really impressed seeing um, this Ute Negatest, uh, so much content on the site. Um, what are we up to now? <laughs> we're, we're almost done with the, the big rollout. It's been a bit of a drip feed for some months now because the testing was all done in November. Um, but we've got a series of um, content pieces already live on the site and a few videos on YouTube. So we've covered towing, uh, a massive drag race, uh, and off-roading already. Um, and we'll be doing the, the final piece de resistance where we reveal the overall winner of the, our 12-year mega test um, later this week. So um, make sure that you uh, tune in for for our final announcement later this week, but also get across all of the content because the the team has put in so much work uh, into all parts of it, whether it's video, written, logistics. I can vouch for the logistics part because that was a lot of my (laughs) job. Um, And obviously just being present and and helping out with doing the actual testing. So credit to everybody that was involved. Um, You know, Paul and the video team have done an excellent job on the video. There's probably like three hours of video content on our YouTube channel now with like Mm -hmm. from about three or four terabytes of raw vision so there's so many things in there we'll probably have to try and get a number like a set of statistics as to actually what yeah. went into it because it was it's been the biggest project that our team has done um since car expert launched and um i think it's it's turned out so well and we're just really really proud of um everybody um that was part of it and also everything that we've um, been able to produce out of it so yeah Nice. I, I love it how you did a drag race for probably no apparent reason, just because. Yeah. Um, is, is that live yet or are you able yeah. to say who won? Yeah, so the drag race was um, the Ranger Raptor, um, obviously, because that was the only real performance variant there. But then we sort of had a surprise entrant by bringing um, the new Ram 1500 TRX, um, that big supercharged V8 one. Um, I won't reveal the winner of that race because oh. it is there's a lot of noise and there's a lot of like yelling um, from the in-car vision. So I would definitely recommend... <laughs> <laughs> no, not for me. I didn't. I wasn't in this one, but um, I definitely recommend checking out that video because it was actually quite interesting to see. You know, we had a mix of petrol and diesel um, vehicles on test, and then obviously that final one was a, a fun sort of. Uh, bonus extra but to see how everything performed is really interesting and then on top of that Paul has all the like zero to 100 times and stuff in there as well so um, a really interesting test and even though it seems a bit silly um, you know we a lot of people harp on about performance figures and and you need to know how these are going to perform relative to their competitors which is what the purpose of this was so yeah definitely worth checking out. To talk about this week's car news, we welcome Jack Quick. Hello, Jack. Hi, Mandy. How are you? Very good, thank you. I reckon uh, most fans of Utes will be very pleased to hear that the Ford F-150 pricing is out and it's actually not as exy as we thought. Yes, Mandy, that's right. So, yeah, um, orders of the new Ford F-150 are now open in Australia. Uh, Pricing starts at $106,950 before on-road costs and extends to 140, 945 before on-road costs, which is still a lot, but given the segment, it's pretty competitive. 
Uh, Ford is expecting to start sales uh, in the third quarter of this year and uh, the first, ba- uh, first batch set to be remanufactured locally to right-hand drivers already on the boat. So it's not too far away, uh, far away at all. Um, these models will be remanufactured from left to right-hand drive uh, by RMA Automotive in Mickleham, Victoria. Uh, at this stage, there are going to be two trim levels of the F-150, uh, an entry-level uh, XLT, and then a top-of-the-range Lariat, and both of them are going to be available in a short or long wheelbase uh, configuration. Uh, the entire range is powered by um, a 3.5-litre uh, twin-turbo V6 engine uh, producing 298 kilowatts of power and 678 newton metres of torque. Um, Entry-level XLT variants will have a part-time uh, four-wheel drive system, uh, whereas uh, flagship Lariat re- variants will have a full-time four-wheel drive uh, system, uh, just comparing the two. The entire range does have a segment matching um, 4,500 kilometres kilograms uh, brake towing capacity and um, last thing to mention as well as the entire range is covered by Ford's five-year unlimited kilometer warranty so that's good to see Uh, but I'd love to know guys are you happy with the new uh, how Ford has positioned the F-150 in this segment? This is obviously a really exciting announcement. We've been covering this for quite some time um, across the team. And, uh, you know, the F-150 seems like a really logical choice to bring to Australia, given the um, popularity of the Chevrolet Silverado and the Ram 1500 here um, in Australia. And, you know, the pricing is actually a bit more reasonable than we thought it was going to be. I remember when the press release came in, we all were discussing it as a group and we were quite interested that, you know, it's it's quite competitive with what's available on the market right now. And um, like I've said previously, I think there'd be a lot of Ford customers that are currently in ranges or even perhaps Everests that want something a bit bigger or with a bit more capability, particularly for the for towing. There's a lot of Australians that have huge boats, caravans, horse floats, all, all manner of things that they will um, tow with their vehicles. And I think that it's it's so important for Ford to not lose customers to other brands once they sort of grow out of their current products. I think they've made that mistake with their passenger car and SUV range for a really long time. Um, and I think now that they can, you know, you can graduate from a Ranger into something else once you need something more um, because, you know, the Raptor, the new Raptor anyway, is, a, is obviously a big step up on the old one, um, but there's still not necessarily a really heavy duty alternative if you need something a bit more than perhaps even the the latest v6 diesel so um yeah i think that we're going to start seeing a lot of these on the road um once they start arriving at the end of the year and i think the spec mix at least at launch is a fairly decent um spread of features and variants and whatever i just think that there'll be demand for them to bring something like a an f-150 platinum or even like their version of the raptor which is even more crazy than our ranger raptor so excited to see where this goes it's interesting they're starting with the xlt and the lariat i mean the lariat has a lot of you know, posh features as well, like ventilated front seats and whatnot. But it's still effectively, it's really a mid-range F-150 if you look over at the US lineup. Um, I think Ford has got a significant opportunity here because if you look at the number of dealerships they have and the geographic spread of them compared to, say, Ram or GMSV's dealerships, I think that might give them a little bit of an advantage here. You also have to consider the fact that the Ranger is the number two use in Australia. And I think there are a lot of people who have Rangers that would 
would be more than willing, as James said, to step up to an F-150. I think what's going to make this segment even more interesting is when Toyota finally, like officially confirms the Tundra, because then we'll, we'll start to see once this segment is absolutely jam-packed with rivals we'll start to see if there's there's really going to be significant growth for the segment overall or if the brands will just start can, like cannibalizing from each other um but judging by the number of you know full-size american pickup trucks you see on the road and the number of you know f-series trucks that have been imported over the years by the likes of you know like performax and that and converted locally Locally, I think there's significant untapped demand for um, an F-Series here, um, and I think we'll probably see a lot of them on the roads. I mean, how much is a, a new Ranger Raptor? That would be almost knocking on the door of an F-150 price, wouldn't it? Almost. It's it about is. like 90-ish, so there's a little bit yeah. of a step up to go to the, the F-150, but it's not crazy. It's not no, a crazy not. amount. Yeah, yeah, it's very big surprise that price. Um, now we're going to move on to some Bentley news. Uh, as we know, the the W twelve will no longer be very soon, but they're sending it off rather nicely, Jack. So yes, Bentley is ending production of its iconic W twelve engine in April twenty twenty four. To send off the powertrain, it'll be used in a limited production model called the Batua. <laughs> Uh, just 18 examples of this Batur are going to be hand-built um, with the 6-litre twin-turbo W12 engine producing 552 kilowatts of power and 1,000 newton metres of torque. Uh, to achieve this power and torque figures, um, Bentley has reworked the intake, exhaust and cooling system as well as revised the engine calibrations and drew some, um, did some turbo tweaking too. Um, a few little fun facts I uh, found in the, about this is each W12 engine takes about six and a half hours to make, uh, to complete. And uh, once the uh, production facility has uh, wound down W12 production, this is obviously going to make um, more space for production of its V8 and V6 plug-in hybrid powertrains. Uh, but once again, um, once production of the W10, W12 sorry, engine finishes, um, Bentley claims it will have manufactured over 105,000 uh, W12 models. And it's also been in production since 2003. So it's had a fair run. Um, but the end of production of this W12 engine is an important step in, our, in the brand's process to being all electric uh, by 2030. Are you sad to see the W12 go though? Yeah, it is sad. I mean, this is, as you mentioned, Jack, a very long running engine, uh, but it, you know, it's, it's just kind of a fact of life as the European brands, um, shift towards electric only lineups. We know Rolls Royce is also going to an EV only lineup. And so it'll be bidding adieu, uh, to its <laughs> giant engine. Um, I think, you know, brands like Bentley and Rolls Royce have said that, uh, you know, transitioning to electric actually isn't really um, a, a crazy step for them because if you think about why Bentley and Rolls-Royce use 12-cylinder engines, it's because of the perceived smoothness and effortless power and thrust that they offer. Um, and that those are attributes that you can also say of a, a well-calibrated electric powertrain. Um, but as obviously as petrol heads, it's, it's sad to see engines like this go because they're, they're, you know, they're really not going to come back ever. Hmm. I mean, Joe, you're you're a bit of a fan of um, 
English cars. You must be sad the W12's going. Yeah, I guess it's it's always sad to see legends die, and the W12 has been such a um, a fixed part of the Bentley heritage for the last, at least the modern Bentley heritage for the longest time. Um, and, you know, the, that engine is is quite iconic and has amazing attributes and has been the powerhouse behind a lot of Bentley's really cool models over the last 20 years. So it's obviously sad to see that go. Um, but like the others have already said, it's I think it's, a, it's an important stepping stone for particularly these high-end brands to sort of set the example and um, – put away these high polluting um, and high high consuming engines that um, perhaps can be subs out for something like an electric powertrain. Um, these brands, most of these cars are driven in high traffic at low speeds and whatever. And when they've got these huge engines under the bonnet, just sipping up or not, not really sipping, they're just gurgling through fuel. Um, <laughs> it, make, it, it makes sense that they, they make way for something new and high tech and, um, you know the the V the current V8 and um, plug-in hybrid powertrains are sort of you know the the steps before electrification as well. That plug-in hybrid, especially, I remember speaking to a Bentley representative when I did the uh, what was it the the Bentayga launch a couple of years ago, and one of the a high up Bentley executive had basically said, "Oh, I switched out my W12 or V8 Bentayga or Flying Spur for a plug-in hybrid Bentayga, and I can basically drive." I think he said 35 miles or something like that on electric mode and I never use the petrol. I don't fill it up for two, three weeks at a time because most of the driving is done in town. So, mm. you know, I think a lot of customers are already making that move and you'll find in these um, Uberlux segments that people are more willing to try new things. Yeah, they're either super old school or they want to try something new. Um, and I think, yeah, it's just a matter of time. So it'll be interesting to see what happens next because – with the W12, it's lately anyway has been, you know, the top powertrain for something like a Bentayga or a, um, a Continental Flying Spur in terms of their speed models. So what this means for the next lot of high, high-performance Bentleys, what what they're going to do with the V8, maybe they'll use a V8 hybrid or a plug-in hybrid or something like that from the, um, the Porsche Panamera or KN range, or, you know, maybe they'll engineer something completely different. So it'll be really interesting to see what they do next. Mm. Buyers like your dentist, Jack. <laughs> what? Jackson just owns a Bentley? Yeah, so I am. Um, I recently got my How wisdom teeth. How much do you pay out. your dentist? <laughs> I know, right? I know. <laughs> so, they are, my dentist has an old, like, 2006 Continental GT that looks like it's had a hard life, but um, yeah, so he owns a Bentley. And what was I he mean, looking at replacing it with? Um, it was asking me about um, Ionic 5 and EV6s, so really? looks to be going all electric. So James is right. You know, these yeah. buyers either want to stay traditional or they're willing to embrace the, the nearest thing. Although I can't think of another person I've heard of who's gone from a Bentley to a Hyundai before. So, <laughs> How very interesting. Um, now we're going to move on to uh, some Peugeot news. We've got a second EV coming to Australia, Jack. This is interesting. Yes, and that second EV is called the E2008, which is their small SUV. Uh, so the Peugeot E2008 is set to arrive locally in the the third quarter of this year, so it's not too far away at all. Um, it'll compete against the likes of the Kia Niro EV as well as the Volvo XC40 Recharge. Uh, locally, it'll be available in a single highly specced variant. Um, it'll follow after the e-partner electric van, which is due in the next couple of months. 
This E2008 is powered by a front-mounted electric motor producing 100 kilowatts of power and 260 newton meters of torque, and it's also hooked up to a 50 kilowatt hour battery pack. Our range hasn't been confirmed yet, but in New Zealand, it has a 372 kilometer of electric range, according to WLTP testing. Uh, details are scarce at this, day, at, at this stage, so we don't know what it's going to have, but we do know one particular thing, and that is it will have 18-inch 18 18-inch alloy wheels, which is kind of unique because in the UK it's not offered with those kind of wheels. Um, pricing will be detailed closer to launch at this stage, so we don't know how much it's uh, going to cost. But in the UK, the E2008 uh, has a 25% price premium, uh, indicating a starting price of around sixty-five dollars to $70,000, which is a lot. <laughs> um, but I'd love to know, guys, will the E2008 be a welcome addition to the Peugeot range in Australia? I think that um, it's a really good move from Peugeot to start bringing in their electric products. I know that it's likely going to be priced quite premiumly, if that's even a word. Um, <laughs> and the specs of the current model perhaps aren't you know, class leading, but we have to remember that this car has been around actually for quite a while overseas. The E208 and the E2008 um, were launched in Europe, you know, three to four years ago and have basically had the same powertrain and battery specs for a while. So I think in, in terms of whether it will do well, it will largely depend on how it's priced. If they can get it under that $70,000 barrier um, and, you know, put it up against a Kia Nero EV GT line is over 70 grand these days, as is a um, an entry-level Volvo XC40 recharge. So if they can come in under that, um, given the range deficit, um, I reckon they could do okay. And there'd probably be a lot of Peugeot buyers given they're quite drawn to the design and like the new age look of their vehicles, the electric powertrain I think really fits that sort of vibe really well. Um, I would also hope that if they bring out an updated one soon, which it shouldn't be far off and given the E208 um, overseas has just launched with an updated battery and motor from the E308, I know there's a lot of E's and numbers going on here, um, I would hope that they would bring that here quickly so that, you know, we're not getting effectively an old car for much longer. But, um, you know, the e, the 2008 globally um, is one of the best-selling SUVs in Europe. Up until last year, it was the top-selling SUV in Europe. And, um, you know, it's never quite had the same traction here. So I'm quite excited to see how they price and spec it. It should align with the GT variant offered overseas, which is largely aligned with the top spec models here um, and I think given the state of the market at the moment where everyone's clambering to try and get into anything electric I imagine that they'll sell actually this is probably could be the best selling Persia that they've had in a while because it, it actually caters to something that people are looking for so power to them. Well we're going to stick to uh, some more European cars here now Jack uh, orders for the most uh, current Volkswagen Tiguans may not reopen. Yes, Mandy, that's right. So tight supply of the Volkswagen Tiguan means sales will wrap up for most variants ahead of a launch of a new generation model. Volkswagen has already confirmed it has paused orders for the all-wheel drive 132 TSI, 147 TDI and 162 TSI variants due to this tight supply. 
Um, despite this, there's a stronger supply of the longer Tiguan allspace. So you, you can still get a Tiguan, but you'll uh, be wanting to get a larger one. But there is more than that too, because um, examples of the monochrome edition Tiguan um, have already been built and a front-wheel drive uh, 110 TSI and uh, all-wheel drive R models uh, will continue to be coming this year. So you can still get a Tiguan, but you just can't get a five-seat all-wheel drive version for the next little bit, which means it could be coming with the new uh, next-gen model. Uh, Volkswagen has confirmed there's going to be 1,000 uh, Tiguan Rs coming this year, um, plus a few hundred uh, grid editions. So still a continued supply of that. Um, but in the as I mentioned, with this new model, uh, we've already seen a, a number of spied uh, prototypes uh, with a different design and all that kind of fun stuff. Um, it's expected to be based on the, the latest um, MQB Evo platform like the Golf Mark 8 and the Skoda Octavia. So yeah, we'll have to have to wait and see, but at this stage, it looks like orders of certain uh, Tiguans are going to be uh, delayed or paused until this new gen model, which is, uh, from my understanding, just around the corner, either going to be revealed late this year or early next year. Um, we'll have to wait and see, but um, are you surprised that the new gen Tiguan is just around the corner? It feels like the, the facelifted Tiguan was only just revealed yesterday. <laughs> Yes, you're right, Jack. It seems like it wasn't that long ago that the facelifted model um, was revealed. Um, we've seen spy photos of the new generation Tiguan um, out and about, uh, so it's it's evidently not that far away. Um, it's when you look at Tiguan sales. Um, it's been affected by supply issues perhaps more so than than almost any other vehicle in its segment. Uh, so its sales numbers are, are well off what they used to be. So hopefully by the time the new generation model launches, um, things will be better. Volkswagen has made it really clear that Wolfsburg, the Wolfsburg plant with, where the shorter Tiguan is built um, has been grappling with supply issues, but the Mexican plant where the Tiguan Allspace is built um, has been you know, relatively unencumbered by those. Uh, so, yeah, you're right. If, if you want to get a Tiguan, you're probably going to best be looking for an Allspace at the moment. Mm. What are your thoughts, Joe? Uh, I guess it's sort of to be expected at this point. Um, like... We know or we've seen the prototypes that there's new generation versions of all of these um, midsize Volkswagen Group SUVs due this year. So Tiguan 5-seat, um, Skoda Kodiak um, and Karok are meant to all be you know, overhauled and put on this new platform. Um, and we'll likely see that across a couple of other model lines in the group as well. Um, like Will said, the 5-seat the Tiguan has been really, really hammered by supply issues um, for quite some time. And it's no surprise given it's globally one of their best-selling models. And in Europe, it's very, very popular. So while it's a shame for Australian customers, and I think I covered the launch of the facelift back in 2019, or not 2019, that's too long ago, um, maybe 2020. Um, <laughs> and it doesn't feel like it's been out for all that long but you know these things things are moving quickly and and Volkswagen unfortunately has just seems like it just hasn't really catered for all these um, supply chain issues as well as some other brands have so you know Europe gets first prior and Australia sort of has to catch the dregs afterwards and it just seems like we've been losing out a little bit lately so hopefully um, with this new generation model that's um, likely to launch here within the next 12 to 18 months we'll see better supply um, we're meant to be getting uh, plug-in hybrid versions for the first time which should be really good um, and it'll obviously move to a new design with all the latest tech that we've we've seen th um, throughout the Volkswagen group so We'll see what happens. 
Mm, cannot wait. All right, that wraps up this week's news. You can hit the news link at Car Expert for more. And thank you, Jack Quick. Thanks, Mandy. The Porsche Cayenne Turbo GT has had a few changes here and there for MI23, and Tony Crawford has reviewed it to see if that twin turbo V8 still stacks up too. Hello, Tony Crawford. Hey, Mandy. How are you? Very good, thank you. So um, what's exactly changed for this year's model? I can tell you that it is, without doubt, the sharpest, uh, quickest uh, hypo SUV I've driven to date. And I've driven the Urus Performante on track. I've driven the DBX 707 on road. And I drove the Porsche Cayenne Turbo GT on road. And the noise, the, I mean, the power is 471 kilo, 471 kilowatts and 850 newton meters of torque. It's one of the lightest vehicles in its class as well. I mean, it's got as standard an 18 kilogram uh, D weight of a titanium exhaust, which saves 18 kilos, I should say, in a more convenient way. But um, that's the extent. Every single factor on this vehicle, whether it's turbochargers that have larger compressor wheels now, whether it's an uprated engine um, with new uh, uprated crankshaft, connecting rods, pistons, timing chain drive, you name it, this vehicle has had the ringer put through it, if you like, and um, everything has been updated to answer your question. Um, down to the smallest detail, the air-water intercoolers are larger. There's three new um, radiators uh, to cool this thing because it obviously generates amazing and so much heat. Um, And I can't believe it's actually sharper than a Urus Performante, which has been designed and it's very, very capable on track. But this thing, I wish I could drive it on track because I know it feels sharper and I think I could push it quicker on track than a Urus Performante. That's saying something. Um, You know, I I have not driven the Aston on track, so I can't uh, talk from that angle. But the Aston is very, very good all-rounder, I dare say, potentially more comfortable. But then you get in the Porsche, and like all Porsche SUVs, they have this magnificent art of balancing ride and handling so you it rides firm as you expect a Porsche to ride but there's no uh, input to the cabin or bump no matter even if you hit a big pothole it seems to dampen the entire hit I don't know how these guys do it but they've done it with this vehicle and I've never been really a KN fan to be honest because if, if I've got any negative, it'll be the front end looks a bit boaty and um, not quite as attractive or unique as a Performante or, a, or in fact, a, a, an Aston Martin DBX 707. Um, that's probably my only criticism, but comfort, um, tech, um, ride comfort, performance, handling, it all surpasses its competition in my view. Um a yeah, big call. Um, I, I, you know, some will say that, okay, well, it's not in the same league as a Lamborghini or an Aston Martin, and maybe they're right. Um, and, you know, Porsche is a Porsche, and it's not usually considered up there with Bentley or Aston Martin or even or even Lamborghini. These are these are luxury Italian high-end brands and, and English brands. But um, I don't know. What, what do you guys reckon about, about the Porsche versus those other marks? Um, I think it's a, an interesting one because that particular car that you had, Croth, is basically their version of the Urus Performante or you know any of the other vehicles on that platform 
in their most potent form. And it, it, I think it set a Nurburgring record not long ago. So it's very, very capable on track, which I guess, you know, for the longest time you had KN Turbos, KN Turbo S's, GTS's and whatever, but they weren't necessarily holding these sort of records on racetracks like this one does. So I think this is really um, a demonstration from Porsche of how it has applied its sports car and supercar know-how into this crossover SUV form, which I think is really impressive. And, you know, it's got a manic version of that 4-litre twin-turbo V8. We had one in Melbourne um, around the same time that Crawf had his one um, for Paul's video, and I actually picked it up. And I didn't drive it past 60 kilometres an hour, but you you fire it up and, you know, I, I know a few of us have complained in recent times about how these downsized V8s don't really sound anything like the old big block ones did. But the bar that comes out of the back of this thing was just insane. Um, and, you know, you hold, you put it in manual mode, you hold the gear, you flick the exhaust button into open and it just like, it cracks, it it bellows, it it burbles. And it was like, you know, I, I'm the same. I actually find myself agreeing with Croft. I've never really been a Porsche guy. And I, I say this in the office and on, I've probably said it on a million podcasts, um, which is a stark contrast to somebody like Scott who like would die for a, a Porsche. Um, but, you know, the, some of their latest products, and I, I recently re- reviewed a Macan again for the first time in a while, and I think their their latest round of product is, like, really, really well-rounded, and they're not so, like, wildly expensive anymore, and there's, there's just sort of, like, they're fun again, because I think a lot of other brands have started to lose their touch a little bit with, you know, some of the dynamics or the, the driver engagement or just, you know, basic feel of controls in, in an age where we're assisting everything and electrifying everything or doing things by wire, um, but but the, the Porsches are refreshingly, um, you know, somewhat analog, but also very, very communicative. And, um, yeah, so I, I really um, think that they're onto something with this car, though I hate the Coupe KN. I hate the look yeah, of it. Oh, yeah, me too. But I'll let, I'll let Croft talk about the back of it because he already spoke about the front. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the thing. Um, the, the front is uh, a bit um, sort of uh, – anything Porsche SUV looks like this, basically. But the rear, well, that's a different story because it's got those two GT3-style pipes in the centre, centrally mounted. And this is, for all intentional purposes, the GT3 of SUVs. Uh, And it performs in every way like a GT3 or like a Porsche GT car. And as James said, he was just sort of reminding me of a few things when driving this slowly. I was still having fun because this thing even sounds loud in normal mode. I mean, and it was still crackling on on the overrun you know, coming down a hill uh, onto the brakes and it was still making great noise. Um, That's the other thing. It's got paddles, beautiful paddles, but um, I didn't use them because once you go into sport mode, I didn't go into sport plus very much at all just to try it once. But sport mode, it's this thing shifts like, you know, better than you can shift a manual and faster, particularly on the downshift. So there's no point in using the paddle. It'll do it better for you. Um, and you're right, uh, James, about the, the track stuff. Not having driven it on the track, but I've driven the Euros Performante, this thing holds the Nürburgring Norschleife record. Nothing has been faster. Not even the Performante Urus, which is designed for track work. And I've driven it on track and it's incredible, but this thing's quicker. I mean, and I mean, it's 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 a hundred grand cheaper than the Lambo. Wow. I mean, you've got to be, I mean, I don't know how, how 
people, you know, make that decision with money that are that are at this end of purchasing these vehicles. I mean, I don't think money matters, but but you you would have to be mad literally to buy the Lambo over this. I really do think you'd have to be mad. Um, you'd have to really like the Lambo shape. Um, for one, and that may be a, a good enough reason to switch. But the Porsche is a better driver's car in my view. And it's actually really easy to drive. I, I don't know how James find it, and he tell me in a minute. But just getting in this and driving it, it's just like a normal SUV. But it's the world's fastest SUV on the Nürburgring. So fi- go figure. It's it's comfortable. Um, Alcantara right through. It's really nice inside. I'm probably not as luxurious as an Aston Martin DBX 707, but then the, the Aston Martin has a pretty ordinary uh, tech setup and tech screens and all that, whereas this is first rate. The um, wireless CarPlay worked brilliantly. I mean, before I even got in the car, it recognized me and came up CarPlay. So all that stuff is all sorted uh, for a hundred grand cheaper. I think it's about 70 grand cheaper than the DBX 707. So yeah, um, I'm, I'm sold hook, line and sinker on this and I didn't want to give it back and I I almost want to ring her talking about it now, ring the Porsche uh, PR lady and, and please, if it becomes available, can I have it again, you know? like. <laughs> uh, so, Tony, what do you think about the chassis? Well, this is where, I mean, Porsche, you know, GT cars are, uh, have, you know, extra work done to their chassis. They're stiffer, they're, they're more communicative and all that, the steering and that. But honestly, uh, Will, this driving this big vehicle, I mean, it's 2,200 or 2,300 kilos almost, but I tell you what, it doesn't feel like that when you're into a corner. In fact, I put it through a couple of chicanes and roundabouts and really stepped on it. And the freaking thing is so tight. It's just unreal how this thing performs. And you just want to drive it like you, you almost feel like you're driving a GT3 911. I mean, that's the feeling. And uh, James mentioned it earlier, they've been able to inject 911 into a big freaking SUV. And I think that is an absolute engineering triumph. And it seems only Porsche can do it, even though uh, Lamborghini is related in so many ways. But Porsche go to this next level. And I don't know how they do it. They are the absolute, I'm not drinking their Kool-Aid, but they are the absolute magicians of ride and handling. End of story, bar none. I think it's a really good place to uh, end that review. Uh, keep your eye on carexpert.com.au for Crawl's review. Thank you, Tony Crawford. Thank you, guys. Joe, I'm really glad to see for once a manufacturer just hasn't put stickers on an S model, jacked up the price and called it sporty. Um, <laughs> look, snaps for GWM Havel for going the extra mile for the Jolly on S, which you've reviewed. Um, what do you think of it? Well, yes, you're right, Mandy. Um, if it's the first time in a while we've seen one of the mainstream brands um, slap an S or a sport badge on something but actually do things to it um, that should improve the performance um, befitting of that tag. Um, so what do I think of it? Um, I'll give you the abridged version up front. It's definitely it's potentially the best petrol-powered jolly on that's currently on sale. Uh, I know that's oddly specific, but there's reasons for that. Um, and I think that it still is priced – in a way that makes it competitive with the wider segment. So, you know, a lot of the times with the Chinese brands, one of the biggest selling points is obviously the fact that there's such good value for money on paper. They're much, they're usually much cheaper than the, you know, equivalent Japanese, Korean and particularly the European stuff. Um, they offer 
pretty much all the features that you'd um, that you'd want or need in a in a vehicle in any segment they compete in, and obviously they um, have strong warranties now and and sharp drive away pricing. So that that's all plays into it. The Jolion S is now the flagship of the petrol range. Um, so it's thirty six nine ninety drive away. You get a power and torque bump over the normal ones. So it's an extra twenty kilowatts, an extra fifty meters, which is actually you know fairly significant when you think about the segment and you know, the numbers that you're working with at the base level. Um, and it also um, switches out the torsion beam rear suspension for a multi-link rear. So, you know, there's quite a number of engineering changes here that have contributed to um, the creation of the Jolion S. And, um, you know, I definitely, having driven quite a few Havel products in the last couple of years, um, and my last review of a Jolion was of the Ultra, um, I definitely think that there have been not only the stuff that's been done on paper, but I think there's been some refinements to the technology, particularly the driver assist systems, which are you know usually a cause for complaint in these vehicles, um, it definitely was a lot better than I remember from the last one. Because while the last one, I think I rated it fairly well in the sense that you know it's good value, it has all the stuff that you need, um, and it drives well enough. Um, especially when at the time there were some competitors that had either anemic um, powertrains or you know fairly dim-witted transmissions. Um, the Jolion wasn't perfect, but it definitely was um, good for the time and was much cheaper at the time as well. Uh, the Jolion S um, builds on that further, and I, I think that they're onto something fairly solid if you're not willing to look at one of the hybrids. Is there a significant improvement in the way this drives compared to just the regular petrol Jolions? And is it anything actually approaching sporty as the name and styling tweaks would suggest? Uh, well, I would say that it does feel punchier and there were a few occasions where I did try to give it the beans or, you know, send it through a few bends at um, a bit more clip than you'd that you'd do in normal driving just to get a feel for it. It definitely feels more balanced um, and the drivetrain is surprisingly punchy. Um, I think it definitely feels more muscular than most vehicles at, at that end of the market and um, the the dual clutch transmission, I believe, was also retuned for this specific model, and it definitely smooths out some of the the kinks um, that were in the original version, which I don't think has re received any sort of mechanical changes or you know drivetrain changes really since its launch. So it definitely just felt more well rounded, and you know, sort of like not quite sporty, sporty, but when you think about like a a Monte Carlo or a Sportline badge Skoda, where there's a little bit more power and some minor tweaks here and there to make it drive different. Differently. that's the kind of thing that I'm getting from this. Or even like um, the difference between an i30N line versus a normal one, it's, it's that kind of difference where it's just that little bit more well-sorted. Um, in saying that, it's it's another three or four grand over the, the Jolion Ultra. And I just think that that's quite a steep price to pay for what is effectively the same car, irrespective of those drivetrain changes. And, you know, at, at that point, end of the market, at least from a price point perspective, you're starting to put it right in line with some very um, capable competition. Um, I personally would not buy one for myself compared to some of the other vehicles in the segment. I think, um, you know, for example, a, a mid-spec Mazda CX-30 is a much better car. Um, you could get yourself into a, a well-spec Kia Seltos for similar money and you might lose out on some features or some perceived features and tech and whatever, but it's definitely more um, well-rounded and offers equivalent space because the Jolion, to its credit, has an 
a heap of space. Like in the back seat, it generally feels like a midsize SUV in the boot as well. It's it's much, much bigger than most cars in the segment um, in the back seat and the boot. So that's um, probably typical of um, the Chinese market where a lot of people like to be driven or they need a big back seat. <laughs> there's that. There's definitely that feeling um, there in the Jolion. Um, but you know, for most people buying in, in this class, I feel like a lot of them are, you know, young couples, maybe young families with one or two small children that aren't necessarily going to need much back seat space. And while it's good to have, if you're carrying grandparents, friends, um, whatever around, I just, I, I don't know. I, I just, it, it's definitely much better. It's it's a step in the right direction. And I think that, you know, I, I copped a lot of heat in the Havel Jolly on owners group lately because I shared another review that we published that wasn't so positive And they thought that I was just trying to make fun of them because I wasn't an owner myself. But um, yeah, don't let's not go there because if, if anyone's listening, they'll probably hear me and whatever. Because I genuinely felt bad that it was perceived that way, and I was just trying to share our coverage in case anyone had any questions. But you know, I think that what we've seen from the Chinese brands is they're willing to do the work and and they work very quickly. The Jolion launched only a couple of years ago and it was fairly well received, but it wasn't perfect. And they've decided to bring out this model within the, the first generation life cycle and, and did something about a lot of the complaints. And, and they've, it's definitely worked to an extent. Um, there are still like little oddities, like I don't find the seating position for the driver particularly good. Um, there's no reach adjustment for the steering wheel, for example, and the, sh- the seat base is very short and doesn't offer like a, 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 an angle adjustment, um, even though it's fully electric. Um, and it's just, there's little things like that where for someone like me, I'm, I know some people might find it fine if you're a bit shorter, for example, but if you're quite leggy and you have, you know, a lo- longer legs and torso, I look like a flamingo at the best of times. So like that proportion doesn't always work well with the, the way the cockpit's designed. Um, and the touch screen if you're using smartphone mirroring, it's probably fine, but the touchscreen um, houses most of the in-car functions and doesn't have the easiest workaround to get to get to some shortcuts. So in the, I think it's the H6, you can actually swipe down from the top like a smartphone and you get like a notification center and you can get quick access to a few things. I don't recall this having the same functionality, um, particularly from the smartphone mirroring menu. And so you have to dive into menus to like check the, change the temperature or, you know, turn on certain things but now it's got a physical button bar under the screen for like air recirculation and um demister functions whereas before it was like a touch capacitive panel and i think it's still the case in the other models so there's a few things there so they must be testing out developments that they're bringing out for the wider range with this particular car and then sort of moving on but i think for me personally um since I actually had the car, um, GWM Havel Australia confirmed that they're bringing in a cheaper hybrid version uh, based on the Lux specification, which is identically priced to this Jolion S. And I personally think that if I was going to be telling anyone um, which Jolion to buy, I'd say that Lux hybrid Jolion is probably the best one to buy because getting any sort of hybrid at the moment is really, really hard. Um, Havel's uh, hybrid systems are objectively very very good um i did a comparison between the h6 hybrid and the um, rav4 hybrid recently i actually found that the the h6 was better in terms of its electric drive and how often it shuffled in and out of those modes and it felt much smoother and more powerful so and and the jolion relative to something like a a yaris cross or a toyota um, or a, a chr hybrid feels the same um i think that's probably their best most competitive offering now and you obviously get their um seven year warranty and um 
cap price service coverage and things like that. So there's it's definitely a solid offering and I can understand why some people would be drawn to it and I wouldn't necessarily discourage people from buying it if they've done their research and they've had a drive and they can, you know, work with some of the quirks of the design or the drivetrain. Um, I just still wouldn't necessarily be my top pick in in the entire segment, but it's definitely an improvement and a step in the right direction. So I have to, you know, applaud GWM for bringing in this particular model because for the petrol range, it definitely sticks out as the, as the, the best one. If you want to know more, just keep your eyes on carexpert.com.au for that review to go live. Okay, that brings an end to this week's podcast. Where's the team off to over the next couple of weeks, Jobo? Uh, well, not, most of us are here at the desk, um, but Paul is currently in Europe with Hyundai on some super top secret mission. I'm not sure how much I'm allowed to talk about it, but there is some very exciting news coming out of this event. So make sure you stay tuned to all of our channels because I'm sure he'll do it. TikTok or Reel or whatever he does in his spare time. Um, and as for cars through the office, we've um, currently got the Mazda CX-30 G20e Evolve M Hybrid in Melbourne. Uh, we've got a BMW 740i, a Lexus RX 350F Sport, Mazda CX-9 Sport front-wheel drive, Suzuki Ignis GLX. Um, we're revisiting that tiny little Pokemon-looking thing for the first time in a while. We've also got the Mazda CX-9 Sport front-wheel drive, um, the Suzuki Ignis GLX. It's, uh, we're, we're revisiting that little thing for the first time in a while, which is um, which should be interesting. Uh, we've also got the Nissan X-Trail Ti E-Power with E-Force, uh, Subaru Outback Sport. Um, and in Sydney, we've got Matt Campbell in the Toyota Corolla Cross GX two-wheel drive hybrid, um, which if we remember from the launch, Toyota actually said that they tipped that particular variant to be the top-selling model. Uh, we've also got him in a Subaru WRX RS sedan manual and the Hyundai Ioniq 5 Epic, which is, or Epic, which is the new top-spec model with digital mirrors. So keen to hear his thoughts on that. Is it actually was- pronounced Epic? Sorry, Will. Is that how you actually say it? Or is no, it I think I was just trying it? to be a fancy <laughs> Melbourne housewife. And, uh, James, I was behind you on the highway before, uh, and I believe uh, based on the logo, it's actually pronounced E for Ors um, for this oh, next trail. Yeah. So, yes, great it's name. Terrible. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, if you uh, have any suggestions for us or any questions for the the, the uh, podcast panel team, you can get in touch with this podcast at carexpert.com.au. James Wong and Williams, top four, thank you. Thanks, Mandy. Thanks, Mandy.